reminds us that this is how they, that's the world, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And what kind of love is that? What kind of example would you follow? Because if we follow the example of the world, we're going to miss the mark so greatly. You turn on the TV, it's always about love. There's romance in the movies, there's romance in the songs. Almost every secular song has some kind of element of love, and very often it's very distorted. What kind of love? You to live a life just of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. The kind of love that Christ had for us. And men, in a couple of weeks' time, when Johnny brings the message, this is going to be repeated in your portion of the text. So be prepared in a couple of weeks' time. How are we to love our wives? How are we to live as children of love and children of light? We to copy just as Christ loved us and gave himself up. What a challenge. What a contrast, even in these opening verses, even as I preach it this morning. I wonder if uh, we can't dwell just on these first few verses, the whole portion this morning, because there's so much for us to get out of this. But here's this challenge as we start, that we are to look at the blueprints, and that is Jesus Christ, and we're to measure ourselves against the blueprints, and we're to copy Him. And if Christ gave Himself up, then the way that we are to love one another is with the love that, that we find that we give ourselves up for each other. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? It's very challenging, isn't it? The First Corinthians passage, First Corinthians 13 passage, speaking about how we are to love one another. Love is kindness. The joke in our family, love is, love is giving our, the other person the biggest slice of cake. If there's two slices of cake left over, um, chocolate cake with cherries and thick icing on top and the most decadent pieces of chocolate cake, one is really thin and the other one's bigger. If you love the other person, you'll give them the biggest slice, right? Well, it's been argued if you love the person, you'll care for their health and not give them the biggest slice. Loving is putting the other person first. How did Christ? Christ loved us, and he gave himself up for us. And it says here, as a fragrant offering. And that word ready means a savor, a taste, and a taste of rest, a one that composes or pacifies or is pleasing to God, that, that Christ gave himself up in a way that was just satisfied God's justice and, and, and satisfied the need for sin to be atoned for. And in a way that was pleasing to God. An offering and sacrifice that was well pleasing to God. That's, that's what Christ did. And as God's church, we called to live lives that will be well pleasing. As we follow the pattern of Christ. 
Paul doesn't leave it there, and he continues, and he gets a little more personal here because he's been dealing with how we deal with each other. But now it comes to personal stuff, living as children of light in the world. And as we move on and we look through these next few verses, there's some really ugly stuff. And I don't know about you, it's really awful to even think about such things that are mentioned. But he, he starts here and he says, But among you there must be not even a hint. He brings us warning of darkness. There must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or, even, or any kind of impurity or greed. He says, because these are improper for God's holy people. And a couple of weeks ago, I used that illustration of what is holy. Holy means to be set aside, means to have a particular purpose. And we've been reminded time and time again that we, as God's people, have, we are set aside for His purposes. Not for the purposes of the world, but we set aside for His purposes. And to be holy means to be set aside. Growing up at home, mom had a collection of, of beautiful plates and cups and saucers, gold rimmed and all these fancy patterns and uh, different makes, and, and some of you might know. But it was set aside in a, in a glass cabinet, and only on very, very special occasions. It wasn't the ordinary stuff that we put in the dishwasher. It wasn't the ordinary stuff that we fed the dog from. It wasn't stuff like that. It was, it was just set aside for a particular purpose. And friends, as we look at this passage, we need to understand that God has set us aside, not for the riffraff, not for dirty stuff, not for the stuff that pollutes from the world. And he says, but among you there must be not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. I don't think I need to expand too much on those things. We know exactly what Paul was speaking about when he mentions sexual immorality. We live in a world that is pushing our children in those directions. We live in a world that is pushing agendas. And we've been praying this morning even for the leaders of our country. And we've been praying for the moral compass. We live in a world that has a tremendous the distorted moral compass. And the temptation always for Christians, and we have to guard against it, is to want to fit somewhere in between the Bible and what the world says to become more acceptable. And we can't do that. We mustn't fall for that temptation. Because they're not, it's not proper for God's holy people. He continues and he unpacks some more. And he says, Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. Obscenity is just rude jokes, perhaps. People speaking about things that God has never intended for us to speak about outside of the boundaries of what He's intended. And yet we find it's talk on the streets. We find school children are not exposed. Even as a young boy, I remember going to school and changing schools and going to school in South Africa. And the kids in my class, even back then, were talking about stuff. I had no idea what they were talking about. I now look back and I realize I do know now what they were talking about. And it's kind of this type of stuff 
and yet it was coming out. And, and Paul's saying to Christians, and this must have been rife in Ephesus, in that immoral place with the temple to Diana and so on, and all sorts of obscenities that were taking place. This must have been a huge challenge for them. He says, no, this cannot be a part. Even the talk of it, and even coarse joking, and foolish talk, talk which just has no purpose in it. And he says this, he says, these are out of place in God's church. Now, by way of illustration, I want to ask you, to be honest with you this morning, who's been itching to move this broom? Have you noticed that there's a broom on the stage? And I want to ask you, does, does it belong? And maybe some of you haven't seen it, but... Uh... <laughs> I know most of the worship team wanted to come in and move it straight away. Why? Because this is absolutely out of place. Everything has its place, right? And these things do not belong. Just as the broom doesn't belong here, it belongs in the boiler room. Not on the stage, not amongst the instruments. But it's there for a purpose to illustrate, just in case you were itching to move it. That's why it's there. To remind us that perhaps there are things in our lives that we need to examine that are just even more out of place than the broom on the stage this morning. And the challenge, remember, that Paul was writing not to unbelievers, but he's writing to a church of believers. And there quite possibly was a real struggle that there were Christians in that community that had things in their lives that were just out of place. And they needed to be challenged. And maybe for you and I, it might be, not be something serious or um, it might be, not be something as, as kind of um, explicit that's in our lives. But it might be something small that, that maybe God is even speaking to us in these moments that is just out of place. And not proper. Paul goes on in this warning about darkness, and he says, but rather, instead of doing these things, instead of speaking like this, instead of having foolish talk, there should rather be thanksgiving. It's so wonderful when you're with people who we take every opportunity to give thanks to God, take every opportunity to recognize God's hand in this situation and that situation. I praise the Lord for that because that's what God intends for us. That's what our conversations should be like. If you go into the world, the conversation's not like that. And sometimes it can be so negative and so disheartening. I've been among Christians sometimes and it's not here, <laughs> who are so negative that being in their presence absolutely sucks the energy out of you because they're so negative. And the challenge is God has never intended us to be like that. We need to be replacing this foolish talk and this negative talk and talk that is unhelpful and dirty with thanksgiving. Why? Because God is good. And He's doing amazing things. In our lives. 
Paul goes on and he continues in verse 5. And he says, For this thing, for this, for of this you can be sure, that no immoral, impure, and listen to this, this is really interesting. Or greedy person, he stops at that point and, put, and, and points out that greedy person, um, for such a man is an idolater. I've always taken that, that phrase to refer to all three of them, but as I've studied this and the commentators are saying, no, Paul, with his Jewish background and this whole focus on idolatry being a major problem in the Jewish culture and the whole history of Israel, understands this. That when we are consumed with the things of the world, when we are filled with greed and we want more and more, and that's what the world pursues, such a man is an idolater. And, and there's no place for that. There'll be no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Friends, if we lead, allow these things into our lives, we cannot expect God to be speaking to us. We cannot expect God to be blessing what we're trying to do. And so these things have no place in the kingdom of God, as Paul writes in this instance to believers. Says, you, you can't expect to be part of what God is doing in this world. You can't expect to be part of the reign of Christ. And yet these things have crept in, and these things have obviously crept into the church in Ephesus. And so once again, for us personally, and together as God's people, to be on our guard against these things, because they're always right at our door. The temptation is always there. It never goes away. And we need to be aware. These things cannot be part of our lives. Verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Let's not be deceived by empty words. The Gnostics and the Judaizers were coming to the church in those days. They'll come with this story and that story. The Gnostics were saying, oh, there's an absolute disconnect between your spiritual life and your physical life. And so the implication is, as long as you were right spiritually and you had a right understanding, then you could do what you wanted morally. And there was a disconnect. And Paul comes and says, don't, don't, be, don't be fooled and don't take in empty words. There's a direct connection. The two go hand in hand. We're not saved by works, but if we are saved, we need to look different. We need to be living as children of light, as we're going to come to in the next few verses. And so he says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. I don't want to be under God's wrath. Those in the world are under God's wrath. I think that's a very scary thought. If we have a picture of the magnitude of who God is, the bigness of our Heavenly Father. The world portrays a picture of maybe God's not there, but if He is there, He's this gentle old man sitting up in the sky looking down on us from a distance. And we can, st you know, God's not like that. He says, therefore, verse 7, 
Do not be partners with them. Our previous text, we considered that word unalloyed. means to be pure, not mixed in. Don't be cultural chameleons. Sometimes we look like this when we're with Christians, but when we're with others who are not Christians, we have a tendency to look exactly like them. And if there's another group at the tennis club, we look like them and speak like them. No, God wants us to look like this, not only here, but look like this here and here and here and here there as well. To look different in the world, to be salt and light. We're told to have nothing to do with them, not to be partners with them. As we come to verse 8, we come to this challenge to live as children of light. And it's very interesting what Paul says here and what he calls the believers in Ephesus. He says this, For you were once darkness. Do you notice what's missing there? I would have expected him to say, For you once were in darkness. But that's not there, is it? It's very harsh as he comes across and he says, For you were once darkness, but here's the opposite. But now you are light. And time and time again, we are reminded in the book of Ephesians of who we are in Christ. We are not darkness anymore, but we are light in Christ Jesus. It's just a a matter of physics. But if there's a dark room and you put the light on, it's, it's, it's great because it, uh, it lights up everything. One of the skills I'm learning here is to come into the building when it's dark and, and to get the light switch on without falling over the stage and get to the alarm before it goes off and goes crazy. But it's marvelous when you, when you learn where the light switch is and you can get it on. Without stumbling off the edge of the stage, as I've done once or twice already. I'm getting there, I'll learn it. But it's marvelous to have the light turned on. Because then you can see. And the, and, and the amazing thing about light is, darkness cannot be in the presence of light. And so this, this wonderful analogy that if we are in light, darkness cannot be. Why don't you turn with me? Back to John chapter 3, a wonderful passage. And Jesus says something very profound here. It speaks about those who are in darkness. John 3 verse 16, we, we know that verse so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but they have eternal life. A little bit later on, in verse 19, he says this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Men love darkness. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for that fear that his deeds will expose be exposed. You see, lightness, light exposes things. 
And Paul says, for you once were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. And to live as children of light, we need to represent our spiritual parenthood. We are sons and daughters of the Most High King. And if we are called children of God, and we are called children of light, God is, God is light. Jesus was the light of the world. And if we are to be children of light, we are to represent our spiritual parenthood. We can't claim to be children of light, and we are living as children of darkness. And so the challenge is very clear here. Live as children of light. You can't have one thing on your passport and be something completely different. That's who you are. It has to be lived out. Verse 9, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Goodness and being this just a wholesome goodness about somebody who loves Jesus and who's living by the Spirit. We're going to come to that in, in the next few verses though, next week. Because the Spirit does something in our lives, and not only do we become righteous in terms of obeying God's commandments, but there's a goodness that is evident in our lives. We become good people when we allow God to change our lives. The second word is righteous, and we know what that means. It means to be obedient. It means to be in right standing in terms of what God desires. And also, in truth, we walk in the truth. Not in the world's truth, but in God's truth. And this, is, this is really practical for us, because the world tells us, and the world teaches us, and is teaching our children... Well, the truth is, whatever you want it to be. I remember I had Matthew at Melinda once, and he was just a little boy. And we also had a red carpet at the front, and I got him up there, and I'd, I'd trained him beforehand. I said, Matthew, you, you're going you're gonna to tell me that the carpet is green. And so we had this conversation, and I said, well, Matthew, the carpet's red. And he says, no, Daddy, it's green. We had this whole conversation. And then eventually I said to him, Matthew, it's okay. If, if you want to say that the carpet is green, then for you it's green, but for me it's red. You see, that's exactly what the world does. Is the carpet green this morning? No, it's not, is it? Those who are children in life of lights. Live in the truth, no matter what the world wants to say the truth is. The truth is the truth. And we live in the absolute truth of God's Word and the truth that is in Jesus Christ. And we must not be ashamed to live in the truth and to declare God's truth, despite what the world says. Praise the Lord for the voices in our day and age that are rising up to say and speak about the truth. Of God publicly. He goes on and says, Find out what pleases God. Find out what pleases God. What are you and I doing to find out what pleases God? Are we sure we know what pleases God? In that work situation, what pleases God? And that challenge, we need to make a moral decision. What pleases God? 
in the way that you and I make our life decisions, the way that we conduct our lives, what pleases God in our worship? What pleases God? Do we know? And maybe we take this away as a challenge and to examine ourselves and examine our lives. Do we know in that area what pleases God? Are we sure that what we are doing is pleasing to God? He says here, find out. Find out what pleases God. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Is absolutely, that's so true. It's difficult to talk about these things, isn't it? Because it is shameful. Verse 13, but in everything exposed by the light, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it's said, and here's this wonderful Old Testament quote. It's been adapted in what they believe to be a form of an early Christian hymn. And so the words are different to as it would have appeared in the Old Testament. But here we have three metaphors for what it means to come to Christ. Wake up, O sleeper. When we become spiritually awakened, when Christ enters our lives, we receive Him as Lord and Savior. In that moment, He fills us with His Holy Spirit. We become awake. Wake up spiritually. Wake up, O sleeper. Once we were sleeping, once we were close to spiritual truths. The second phrase is rise from the dead. Once we were spiritually dead in our sin, rise from the deadness of your sins and enter life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the third phrase, and Christ will shine on you. A passage from John 3 that I read earlier, and light has come, this is the verdict, light has come into the world. Christ will shine on us. And he's the light of the world. What a wonderful challenge for us. And it continues in these next few verses as we go on. We can consider from verse 15 to verse 21 in the next little bit. Paul repeats and just reinforces some of the themes that he's spoken about already. What are you and I going to do with this text this morning? Maybe just to sum up, firstly, there's that challenge to be imitators to get back to the blueprint somehow we have we think we have a knowledge of what God requires but do we really know what pleases him get back to that blueprint to imitate him to live a life of love just as Christ loved us the second thing is ask God to examine our hearts our lives to see if there's anything that's out of place, even if it's something small. There might just be something that's out of place, Lord. And then we need to come to Him and we need to ask Him, say, Lord, won't you help me just to get this out of my life? Because I want to live a life that is fitting and I don't want anything in my life that is improper or out of place. That should be the desires of our hearts. And this should be in a constant examination personally. Is there something that's in my life that is improper? Lord, won't you help me to remove it? 
And then we're challenged to live as children of light. To imitate as the first part. To, to be reminded of who we are. To represent our spiritual parenthood. If God is light, is His light displayed in our lives? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you. We thank you for the word today that is, is very powerful, is very challenging. Thank you, Lord, today that it's not my word, but it's your word. That's the scripture for us. It's the word in season. And Lord, as we go and we chew on this in the next few hours, in the next few days, in the coming week, we pray that you would really help us to understand this. That perhaps there's something that we are challenged about. And Lord, we pray that you'll help us to change. Help us to remove things that are out of place. Help us to copy the blueprints of who you are. Help us to examine and find out what pleases you. Lord, help us to be light in the world that is so dark. Help us to glow for you to the glory of and to the honor of your name. Won't you continue to be with us? Won't you continue to fill us with your spirit and speak to our hearts that this word would do the work that you intend for it to do in our lives to the praise and to the glory of your name. Amen.